um, enjoy watching some, some of the Olympics. And one of the things that always uh, fascinates me is when they do kind of a biographical sketch of one of the athletes and all the training, the hours that they put in for years to get ready for the Olympics. Like the swimmers swim thousands of yards a day. <laughs> Have you ever tried swimming like 400 yards? <laughs> it's hard. Well, I mean, for me. Um, I have a nephew, his name is Hudson, he lives out in North Carolina, my, my brother's son, who's a pretty exceptional swimmer as a 14-year-old, and he was telling me that he swims thousands of yards a day. I was going to say miles, not miles, yards though, multiple miles a day. And of course, he's doing that with a goal in mind. He's doing that for a purpose, it's for the event that's coming up, or I know he has a sight set on swimming in college, maybe getting a scholarship. These Olympic athletes, of course, they do it for the gold medal. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that, that uh, they're doing it, Olympic athletes, these athletes, they, they train, they, they discipline their bodies, and they do it in order to get an earthly prize. And we as Christians are to live our lives in such a way that we are doing it in order to obtain an eternal and heavenly prize. We come to a passage here that, um, that is about godliness. About godliness. The main point of the passage is to train yourself for godliness. Godliness is a major theme in the book of 1 Timothy. In fact, of the 15 times godliness is mentioned in the New Testament, eight of those mentions is in this one book, in six chapters. We saw back in chapter 2 that we are to pray for those in positions of authority, governors, our president, the legislature, police officers, and so forth, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, and dignified in every way. Toward the end of the book, first, toward the end of the book of 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, Paul commands Timothy to pursue or literally run after godliness. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, youthful passions, passions of the flesh, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Godliness in Paul's mind, really in the Holy Spirit's mind, is of utmost importance. Now let me ask you a question. Is it important for you to pursue, to run after godliness? Well, maybe we should understand what godliness is first before you answer that question, right? If this is such an important subject in the, in the book of 1 Timothy, and I would say broadly in the New Testament, it'd be good for us to have a working definition of what godliness is. Some hear the word godliness and they automatically think something like legalism or moralism. Godliness is not legalistic. A truly godly person is not someone who's worried that someone somewhere is having a good time and they need to put an end to it. In fact, I would say that true godliness will lead to the truest and fullest enjoyment of life 
in Christ. So what is godliness? Well, the word godliness comes from the root word that means reverence or awe or piety toward God. Now, piety is kind of a word we don't really use anymore. I suppose awe isn't either. Maybe reverence isn't either. But we should use these words. Reverence or awe. When's the last time you, in, in prayer, or you just thought about God and were filled with a sense of awe? Luke and his family and Andy and, and Luke and Elizabeth, Andy and Amanda, and all their kids went to, Luke mentioned Uncle Bud's, and he didn't say it's in Colorado. For some of you, it's like, what's Uncle Bud's? It's this amazing hut, 11,000 some odd feet elevation up in the mountains of Colorado, and you cannot get a more awesome view than you get from Uncle Bud's. You look and you see Mount Elbert and Mount Massive off in the distance. Mount Elbert's the tallest mountain in Colorado, I think in the continental U.S., and Mount Massive is just a little shorter. It's awesome. When you see it, you're filled with awe. Godliness is having this sense of awe and reverence toward God, piety toward God. It's this inner reality of the heart, the inner attitude, the inner disposition of a heart toward God that is filled with awe, reverence toward him. It was not uncommon in times past for people, for a man to be called a God-fearing man or a woman to be called a God-fearing woman, a, someone who reverences God. There's a seriousness toward God, not just seriousness, but there's a deep reverence and fear toward God. Hebrews 12.28 says that our worship is to be done with reverence and awe. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Paul says that Christians are to work out their salvation, not flippantly, not shallowly, shallowly, but with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 Working out salvation, growing in Christ-likeness is not to be approached half-heartedly, flippantly, but with fear and trembling. Steve Lawson, who's a, a pastor, I think down in Texas, he, he says pursuing godliness means that the soul is dominated by a supreme devotion to God. That's godliness. Supreme devotion, not to myself, not to my husband or my wife, not to husband, wife, children, not to my business, but to God. That's godliness. It's to live, a, to live a godly life is to live a God-word life, a God-directed life. Living our lives before God in the presence of God, before the face of God, with reverence for God, and ultimately for the glory of God. This is what godliness is, and it's something we're to pursue. It's something we are to be trained for, godliness. already said this, but I think it's important to emphasize that godliness is an inner reality. Of course, it works its way out in how we live, but it first starts inward. It's not mainly what we do, but what we are. Again, quoting Steve Lawson, he says, 
a person is godly on the inside when he takes God very seriously. He's not an afterthought. He's not kind of on the back burner of life. Yeah, we know he's there, but he's kind of just in the, in the background. There's all these other things in the foreground. No, a godly person inwardly is someone who takes God very seriously. What we do is important, but what we are internally is fundamental and fundamentally more important than what we do. So this awe, this reverence, this taking God seriously, this total devotion to him, or what, what I'm calling godliness, is an inward reality that certainly affects what we do and how we live, no doubt. So if that's what godliness is, it's not hard to see what ungodliness is, right? It's a lack of awe and reverence and fear for God. It's a lack of inward devotion to him. It's irreverence toward him. It's a lack of fear and awe. It's a lack of inward devotion. A theologian named David Wells wrote, I think he wrote this like in the mid-90s. It's from a book called God in the Wasteland. I think it was written in the mid-90s, but I think it's very relevant today. He said this. He said the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. Brothers and sisters, we are called to pursue godliness, to pursue an inward sense uh, that God is great and awesome and reverence toward him. We are to live our lives where God does not rest inconsequentially upon us, but rests very weighty upon us. I don't mean weighs us down and makes us dour and sour, but he rests weighty upon us, the reality of who God is and his gospel and his grace and his judgments. We're to have Godliness branded on our souls, our souls branded with reverence and awe toward God. Now, of course, it's important to say, and and as we go through this, I want you to remember this, that we're saved by grace through faith alone in Christ, by grace through faith in Christ alone. Godliness, however, is the evidence of salvation, right? Godliness in our lives, a growing godliness, this inward work of God's spirit to produce awe and reverence is evidence of salvation, not a way of earning salvation. So here's the big idea from this passage, right? That was just all introduction. Big idea from this passage, from 1 Timothy 4, 6 to 10 is this. To grow in godliness, there's two Massively important ingredients, all right? One is we need to eat nourishing spiritual food. And two, we need to engage in vigorous spiritual exercise. We're instructed to run after godliness by doing two things, eating nourishing spiritual food and engaging in vigorous spiritual exercise. And I don't know, guys, if you sense this, but... The battle is raging all around us, isn't it? I mean, it is. 
I hope, I want, I want you to have a sense of urgency when it comes to this today. This is not just another day to gather with some people we kind of like, they're kind of like, we're here to seek God and hear from God and what he says. We've got to get in spiritual shape. I'm not sure if you've noticed, if you've ever tried to get in shape, maybe you're out of shape, you try to get in shape, or if you try to do a good job of staying in shape, there are two ingredients, maybe more than this. All right, I've, so we have some gurus in here, so you could correct me, but, but I think there's two really important things, all right? You've got to exercise. You've got to get out and walk or run or go lift weights, right? And then the second thing, the thing that I often overlook, because I like to eat junk food, is you've got to have a good diet. Okay? It's the same when it comes to growing and pursuing godliness. We have to exercise spiritually, and we need to have a healthy spiritual diet of what we're taking in to nourish us. So, first, pursuing godliness means eating nourishing spiritual food. The junk food has to go. All right? Here's what verses 6 and 7 says. Actually, we see this in verses 6 and 7. What you need or what you feed on spiritually will lead to godliness or ungodliness. It will promote reverence for God or irreverence toward God. It will lead to a greater seriousness about God or a carelessness about God. Here's what verses 6 and 7 says. This is Paul talking to Timothy. He says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have heard. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. We're presented with two kinds of teachings, two kinds of input that we can take in, and they are contrasted to show the effect they will have on our lives. So let's first look at the negative side of it. It's not negative in the sense it's bad, but it's negative because it's a negative command. Stop doing this. Don't do this. And it's, it's strong and it's serious. It's about the kind of spiritual food we feast on. Just like the athlete whose diet is Doritos and cupcakes, right? He's not going to be in shape. He's going to be malnourished. He's going to be unable to compete effectively. The Christian who feeds on junk... I like Doritos and cupcakes, okay? That's me. Um, But I really do. Um, the, the, The Christian who feeds on junk... is not going to excel in godliness. Here's what Paul says. Again, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. This means refuse, decline, shun, avoid that kind of stuff. We are to avoid irreverent, goofy, silly stories and myths like the plague. We're to avoid it like the plague. Irreverent is literally the exact opposite of godliness. If godliness is this reverence toward God, 
this teaching that Paul says avoid it, it's the exact opposite of that. It's irreverent. Irreverent and silly myths are the kinds of teaching stories and messages that bring God down, that belittle him, that make him more like us. And there's so much of it out there. What are we to do with it? Avoid it. Shun it. Refuse it any place in your life. I recently heard an excerpt of a, of a message that a man gave. Um, and he was telling the story of how uh, there's this man in his life that... that um, he was praying for and he said that he was having this conversation with God and, and God, he, he literally said, God said he wanted this man's advice about what to do with this friend of his. God wanted his advice. Brothers and sisters, that is irreverent and silly and it's a myth. It's a myth. I recently came across a book, maybe about a year ago or so, and I can't remember who wrote it. I, I didn't come across it because I read it, but I'd heard of it. And anyways, um, I can't remember who wrote it. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've read it. It's called The Circle Maker. It takes a real historical figure from the first century B.C., a man named Honi, H-O-N-I, I think that's how you say it, Honi. Um, he was a Jewish teacher and uh, he, he, it, the, the book is about an apparent method that he had for prayer that this author's commending to others to, to, uh, to adopt as their own method. And the story goes something like this. Honey, it, it hadn't rained for, for, for a long time, and he drew a circle around himself and said, God, I'm not leaving the circle till it rains. And he kept demand, praying, demanding, whatever, God to send rain, and eventually it started raining. Honey is a real person, but his teachings are not found in Scripture, of course. I mean, when we, when we want to learn about how to pray, where do we go? Go to the Bible. It has plenty for us. It has a lot to say about prayer. But what's really interesting upon a closer examination is that this Honey, his teaching and the story about his life and this experience, it's, found, it's literally found in a, in a book called the Jewish Book of legends. It's a book of myths, of stories, of tales. It didn't even happen. People are drawn to it. I, only, the reason I was exposed to it is because some pastor was teaching a message on it. The story of Honi is, is a kind of old wives' tale, superstitious myth. And we're seeing more and more people drawn to these kinds of spurious stories, practices, and techniques that are not found in Scripture and can most accurately be, be, be described as irreverent and silly. Paul prophesied of a time when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and they will turn aside to myths, legends. These stories and teachings may sound interesting, but it leads to speculation rather than solid truth. And that's what Paul says 
He says, avoid irreverent babble because it leads people into more and more ungodliness. Well, these irreverent silly myths are contrasted with another kind of spiritual food that we are to feast upon, one that leads to godliness. Verse 6 speaks of the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. The words of the faith, the good doctrine that you followed, this is what we must feast on, the words of the faith. The faith, those two words, I think it's describing the body of truth that we now have been given in the scriptures. This is what we're to be nourished on. This is what we're to feast on is the faith, the words of the faith, the good doctrine, Paul says, the good teaching, the healthy teaching, as opposed to the unhealthy, diseased teaching, the good, healthy teaching. This is what we're to feast on. In 1 Timothy 6.3, Paul says, the sound, he speaks of the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. In other words, the teaching that actually builds up and strengthens godliness. And that's what we're going for, right? That's what we're going for. The ESV in verse 7 excuse me, verse 6, says, um, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. The, the, the New American Standard, I think, says it better. It says being nourished in the words of the faith and the good doctrine. The, the, the scriptures are meant to nourish us. They're, it's meant to be like nourishing food. It really is. I mean, think about what the scriptures do. It points us to who God is. It points us to his work of salvation in and through Christ. It points us to his will and how we're to live in such a way to please him. This is nourishing for our souls. I I get it that some of these other teachings are interesting and fascinating and kind of perk our excitement perhaps, but they're not nourishing. It's not nourishing. God's word is Nourishing, it nourishes us. But if we want the good nourishment that comes from the truth, this is pretty obvious, but sometimes needs to be said and we need to be reminded of it. We must be people who are growing in our knowledge of the truth. There's a certain kind of knowledge that puffs up, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, but a true knowledge that leads to reverence and awe toward God, a true knowledge, excuse me, a true knowledge leads toward awe and reverence toward God. Here's what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3. He says, his divine power, God's divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. How does God give us all things that pertain to life and godliness? Through the knowledge of him. In other words, ignorance of knowledge relegates us to ungodliness. We want to be people who are growing in the knowledge of God and of Christ and of his ways. And that's why the scriptures are so nourishing. They reveal God to us. 
his salvation and his will. Psalm 119, 105, it's amazing. Luke, Luke mentions, we sang it. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Without God's word to show us who he is, what he's done, how we're to live in a way that pleases him, what, to, what we're to believe, what we're to shun, Without that, it's like trying to navigate your way through a maze, a corn maze, when you can't see an inch in front of your face. We need God's word. And so what is the spiritual food we must feed on? It's the precious word of God. It's the word of God. It's the the, the words of the faith and the good teaching or good doctrine And now Paul says to Timothy, these are the things that you followed, right? He's saying, Timothy, you followed. I've taught you. I've opened up the Old Testament. I've taught you. These are the things you followed, so we're to follow after the same. Let's pray for ourselves and each other. Alyssa prayed this during worship. And let's pray, let's, let's really pray this for ourselves and each other that we would have the experience of Jeremiah, In Jeremiah 15, when he said this, your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me the joy and delight of my heart. Isn't that amazing? Your words were found. I was looking for them. I was looking. I found them. I ate them. I devoured them, and they became the joy and delight of my heart. To pursue godliness, we need to eat good spiritual food. Second, to pursue godliness, we also need to engage in vigorous spiritual exercise. Verse 7, the second part, it says, train yourself for godliness. Like the swimmer, right? Like my, my, my nephew. The other thing he does is he eats a ton of food, nourishing food, but train yourself like he does. Jump into the pool. Maybe start off doing two laps and work your way up to thousands of yards, right? (laughs) The word train or discipline comes from the Greek word gymnazo. It's where we get our word for gymnasium. It's an athletic term, of course, and it describes what an athlete does when he trains for the games or for a wrestling match or for a race. He would enter into, this is what Gunadzo means, he would enter into the gym, the training gym or the arena, and strip down, literally get naked so that he could train unimpeded even by the clothes he was wearing. So that he could expend himself fully and completely in his training so that his body would be built up. This, brothers and sisters, is, call, is, a, is a call to serious and diligent spiritual training for godliness. It is. A 19th century Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane, he said the following, listen to this. He he said, how diligently the Calgary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument 
in great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be its success. It's not great talents God uses and blesses so much as great likeness to Christ. So what does this spiritual exercise for godliness look like? Now, of course, this is a subject we could talk about for weeks. And I'm going to just mention three or four things, and we could talk about each one of these for plenty of time, but I'm just going to spend a few minutes on each. To train yourself in godliness, let me just mention a few things, okay? First, we need to lay aside the things that hinder us from running after Christ well. After the great hall of faith chapter, Hebrews 11, we hear this exhortation in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, right, all these men and women of faith, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Do you see what the author's saying? He says, lay aside every weight and sin that keeps you from running well. Apparently, weights and sins are two different things. He says, every weight and sin. So lay aside sin, we understand that, right? Compromises need to go. Practices, habits that you've just taken on as well, I'm just never gonna get past this. It needs to go, it's time to go. Lay it aside, be done with it. What are weights though? Apparently weights are something different than sin. I think weights here are talking about anything, and and sin does this as well, that keeps you from being loaded down and therefore not running after Jesus effectively. I think this is talking about even things that Christians may be free to do, but they keep you from running well. Train yourself for godliness. Lay them aside. There's an old Christian hymn, and I really wish I would have looked it up, but it says, the first line says, rise up, O saints of God. Be done with lesser things. Is that how it goes, the first line? You're nodding your head, okay? So be done, have done with lesser things. Be done with lesser things. If you're a saint of God, be done. Be done. The Spirit will help you. Second, to train ourselves for godliness, we need, to get, we need to be in the habit of confessing sin. Unconfessed sin weighs us down. It just does. We need to do the heavy lifting of confessing sin, not just once a month when you think you've really blown it. Like, oh my gosh, I am such a loser. I really need to get before God and confess this sin. No, daily heart checks because you're serious about godliness. Jesus taught us to pray, among other things. He taught us to pray, forgive us for our debts. 
right? And I, I would suggest that the Lord's Prayer is something that we're to pray daily. We're to pray for daily needs. We're to pray for daily forgiveness of our debts. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, if, if, we say we have no, not, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So that's not the issue. It's not that we don't have sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Train yourself for godliness by confessing sin. Third, prayer. We need to work up a sweat, so to speak, in prayer. Right? I think it was Epaphras in the book of Colossians. Paul says, he's, he's encouraging the Colossian believers. He says, he's always wrestling in prayer for you. The Greek word is agonizomai, where we get our word for agony. He's in agony in his prayers for you. We need to pray. We need to pray. J.C. Ryle has a little book. Um, I have, one, I have, I have a, several in my office. If you have any interest, come See me after church, I'll give it to you, unless I run out. Um, it's really kind of more of a tract. It's really short, but it's on prayer. And in the opening pages, he asks the question again and again, do you pray? Again and again, do you pray? What a probing question. We often think of prayer as a way of asking and receiving from God, asking for things and receiving from him. Of course, it is, but it's so much more than that. Have you ever noticed, have you, has this ever happened to you where you just are, maybe you're weighed down, maybe you just are kind of in a, in, a, in, a, in a fog and you, maybe with others or maybe even by yourself, you just draw near to God in prayer and all of a sudden, before, before long, something is changing in your heart. God begins working in your soul and the fog begins to lift and the discouragement begins to lift. Well, that's, part of God's purpose in prayer. He does a great sanctifying, reverence-producing work when we pray that we miss out on, that we forfeit when we don't pray. Jesus, think about this, Jesus prays for our godliness. John 17, 17, sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. He prays to the Father for us, for our sanctification, for our growth in godliness. And he teaches us to pray the same. In what's called the Lord's Prayer. Can you think of what the first petition is? It's not your kingdom come. It's hallowed be your name. Sometimes we, maybe you've read through that and you've always thought that's just kind of a, a praise to God. It's actually a petition. It's to pray that God's name would be hallowed. Amen. Now, his name is holy, his name is hallowed, but it's to pray that it would be hallowed here. That he would do the work in our hearts of hallowing his name, of giving us reverence and awe for his name. So we need to exercise or train ourselves for godliness and prayer. And here's one more thing. We need to train ourselves for godliness in faith and obedience. We need to refuse passivity and exercise faith. Exercise faith through acts of obedience, acts of faith, acts of labor, acts of faith and labor of love. Think about this. Jesus redeemed a people for himself 
Not who are lazy and just kind of coasting until he comes or, or just trying to barely get by until he comes. But he redeemed a people who are zealous for good works. We're to be zealous for good works. So we need to look for opportunities. We need to fight the urge to be lazy or self-centered and we need to serve one another in love. Train yourself for godliness through faith and obedience. Now Paul in verse 8 presses upon us the, the, the great value of godliness. I think everyone here would say there's value in, ha- in being physically healthy, right? I'm not saying a, a, like pristine athlete. I'm just saying to be physically healthy would say, yeah, there's value in that. I know what it's like to be unhealthy. I know what it's like to be healthy. Being healthy is good. Here's what Paul says in verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Bodily training, Paul says, is good. It's of some value. And it really is. When you realize that your body body is the temple of the Holy Spirit and you seek to do the best you can to take care of it, that's a good thing. There's, There's value in that. But godliness, brothers and sisters, is better. And not just a little better, it is infinitely better. It is supremely better. Paul says godliness is valuable in every way. There is no disadvantage to you growing in godliness. None whatsoever. Paul says it holds out promise in this life and in the life to come. Godliness in this life, think about it, godliness in this life, growing in godliness in this life, allows you to live more and more under the conscious smile of God. That's a good thing, isn't it? And there's a gazillion, there's, I was gonna say gazillion, that's all right. There's many, many, many other blessings that come from God to those who are growing in godliness. But godliness also has is great, there's a great reward for the life to come. Godliness, think of it this way, godliness is the path that leads to heaven. It is. Uh, One thing, I've I've read this, I'd really encourage you. If you you've never read The Pilgrim's Progress, I would strongly urge you to do that, okay? One thing I love about, it's it's called Pilgrim's Progress. He's a pilgrim, he's on a journey, and he's journeying to the celestial city, right? He's journeying to the heavenly city. And there are many dangers, toils, and snares, but he he is headed toward the celestial city. And he has to stay on a certain path. Godliness is that path. It leads to the celestial city. If you're not on the path of godliness, 
Listen, please. If you're not on the path of godliness, if this is something, it's not even on your radar, you don't even give a rip. Listen. If you're not on the path of godliness, you should not expect to end up in the eternal city where God dwells. You shouldn't. Listen. You wouldn't want to be there. If you don't give a rip about godliness, you would not want to be there anyways because God is all in all there. Of course, I'm not talking about sinless perfection. That will be our experience when we get there. But godliness is a life of growing in Christ-likeness. And just in case we aren't so sure the payoff for godliness is worth it, that godliness really maybe isn't that valuable. Here's what Paul says in verse nine. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He doesn't say that very often. He said it back in chapter one, verse 15, when he said that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So whenever Paul, like he wants to put some apostolic weight behind what he's about to say or what he just got done saying, he says something like, this is a trustworthy saying. This is deserving of full acceptance. You can take this to the bank. It's like Jesus when he would preface what he was about to say with truly, truly. It's like, listen up. And Paul is saying, listen up. Godliness is far superior to bodily training. Bodily training is good. Godliness is infinitely better. Where does the stamina come from to train for godliness? Right? If, we're to, if we're to be like that athlete who goes into the gym and gets rid of everything that impedes us from, from training, from disciplining our bodies, from where does the stamina come from? Paul tells us in verse 10. I just saw this Friday. I didn't see it all week and I saw it Friday. I was like, that is so Awesome. Listen to what he says. For to this end we toil and strive. I think what he's talking about is we toil and strive after godliness because we have set our hope on the living God. Paul is saying we strive and toil for godliness because of our hope. Because of hope in the God who lives and the God who saves the hope of eternal life, the resurrection of the body, the joy that's set before us. That's what Jesus did, right? Jesus, in, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's for this hope that we have, this fullness of joy that will be ours when we're in God's presence, this, the pleasures forevermore, we're to strive for godliness in hope. And that's what I love about Pilgrim's Progress. There is, this, there is this desire to get to that heavenly city. I think it was Dwight D.L. Moody who once said, some people are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. You ever heard that before? And maybe you've met someone like that. I think we need to be more heavenly minded. <laughs> I think we need to be more caught up in eternal life, this eternal weight of glory that far surpasses anything in this life. 
How are these Afghan, how are these, these beloved brothers and sisters in Afghanistan going to endure what they have to endure? It's going to be when they look to that. It is, most definitely. And how are we going to endure in this marathon that we're called to run? It's when we look to that. This eternal reward that is ours. Hope in the living God. We're not called to hunker down in our spiritual bomb shelters until we die or Jesus comes. No. Let's strive for godliness. Let's pursue Christ-likeness and let's do it keeping our eyes on the eternal prize. When your future glory hope, which is hope in the living God, when your future glory outweighs your present comfort, when future glory outweighs present comfort, right, what Francis Schaeffer called the idol of personal peace and affluence, personal peace and affluence, hey, everything's good with me, I'll just keep it that way. When, your, when this future glory outweighs your personal comfort, it will motivate you to stay on the path of godliness. the path that leads to the eternal reward of hearing your master say, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what we look forward to, right? Entering into his joy forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would Cause us, Lord, to take seriously this call to be trained in godliness, to train ourselves in godliness.